Well, good morning again, everybody. Hope that your week has gone well. I'm glad that you're able to join us this morning. We are quickly approaching our fall season. As schools start back up, Labor Day is just around the corner, and September is going to be this week. It's crazy how fast time can fly. Pretty soon, farmers will be in the fields with harvest. Temperatures will get chilly, and we'll be having some evening fires and things like that. At least, we hope so. I mean, it's funny how we can anticipate different things, how we can count on different things, especially when it comes to the seasons. Uh, we have certain expectations that we look forward to. You know, it's not necessarily wrong to do that kind of stuff. I think that we can have those same types of observations when it comes to church. Um, we have a sense of familiarity about it, where we expect, you know, a certain format to be there, a certain number of songs to be there. Um, you hope that the preacher doesn't go too long, especially on days like today when you can smell the food in the back. You know, you, you come with certain expectations. And again, it's not necessarily a wrong thing. There's different things in our life that we hold to that are constants, that are something that we look forward to. You know, uh, for instance, a popular saying is that I cling to Christ or I cling to the cross or I cling to the word. And as I say those terms, you know, there's a lot that's wrapped up within those words. There's a lot that needs to be unpacked that could just be assumed. You know, when I say that I cling to Christ, I think of all that he has done for us, us who he is in the Godhead. You know, even as I say Godhead, you know, it makes me think of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit so that when I say I cling to Christ, I'm clinging to God, that he is my only hope for salvation. Um, when I say that I cling to the cross in a very similar way, I, I cling to the cross in terms of the symbol that is used to, to help us understand the death of Jesus, that our salvation came at a cost, that it came at a price, and I cling to him again as my only hope. When I say that I cling to the word, it means that the Bible has the authority in my life, and I hold tightly to those words because they are the words of life. They are the words of God. And these are things that we can be sure of in our life, things that we can look forward to, things that we can have confidence in. And this morning, I wanted to start with asking the question of whether or not you have confidence in the word of God. Do you have confidence in what the word says? Here's a verse for us. But if I go, I will send him to you. Do you know where that's found? I mean, it sounds, no, I can see it down here, but you can't see it up there. It seems like it's a quote from Field of Dreams. <laughs> so is this in the Bible? Do you know where it's at? Do we have hope? Do we have confidence in the word? Do we know what this means? You know, when I first answered the call into ministry, I, I started seminary and then I sat down with our district superintendent and he would just ask questions that you would ask of any pastor. If somebody came to you with this, where would you take them in the word? I had no clue. I didn't know the word 
that well at all. I mean, I knew parts of the word. I can tell different segments of the word. I, that, that sounds like it's an Old Testament thing from maybe one of the prophets, major ones. Sounds like an Isaiah, Jeremiah. You know, and it took years of study, of memorization to come to these types of things. And when you look at this verse, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, you could think, well, maybe Paul said this about Timothy or somebody like that. Or you can use some good deduction and think, well, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit, so obviously this has got to do with the Holy Spirit, and Jesus would be the one saying this, so it's probably in one of the Gospels. And you would be right. It would be in one of the Gospels. Then you've got to think, well, which Gospel does Jesus talk about sending the Holy Spirit? The two big places are both in the Gospel of John, in chapter 14 and in chapter 16. This one happens to be in chapter 16, verse 7. You know, many times as a pastor, I have conversations with people about faith that emphasizes points of wrestling, things that we are struggling through in life. And as we go through some of these struggles, which are common, which are natural, we wrestle through them, and that's good because it's showing that we're seeking God's face in these issues that, that we go through. But as I go through some of these conversations, it brings up words of warning and cautions for us, especially as we talk about the Spirit-filled life and keeping in step with the Spirit. You know, I think people are very big on Jesus, which is a good thing to be big on. I think people are very big on the Bible and the authority that the Word has in our life. Again, I think that's a very good thing to be big on. But I've noticed that people can have very distorted views when it comes to the Father and to the Spirit. And I want, us to caution, I want to caution us and check our hearts a little bit this morning as we go through this message. I mean, we love Jesus. I'm very Christocentric in my faith, meaning Jesus is the center of my faith. Um, but you know, I've heard it expressed over the last 12, 15 years, some different analogies about Jesus in an evangelistic sense. Now, analogies are good because they can help us understand some points, but we also have to realize that all analogies break down at some point. And one of these analogies came across as this, again, in an evangelistic sense. You know, understanding that you are guilty, and it's like you're in a courtroom, and you're standing before the judge. And the judge is ready to sentence death to you. But Jesus comes in and he says, no, 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 he's with me. I'll take his punishment for you. You know, and you're excited, you're elated. You're like, oh, that's great. And then you want to go hang out with Jesus. But you don't want to hang out with that judge up there on the, on the throne because he's angry. And if I screw up again, then just maybe he might smite me. He might throw down a lightning bolt. You know, you begin to get these types of distorted views of the Father. And again, that's for a different sermon to understand how we view the Godhead. Our focus today is on the Spirit. The Spirit is the one member of the Trinity that I've heard the most confusion about, that people have. Even in my own life, I've had to wrestle through different understandings of who the Spirit is. There are times I find people view the Holy Spirit as a force or a power rather than a person where they are unsure of what he does today 
what he's capable of doing in the here and now, or what the church allows him to do in the here and now. Again, distorted views. So as we continue this look at keeping in step with the Spirit, I want to briefly address who he is today and what he does, looking a little closer at the Godhead, hopefully giving us some background, perhaps that we already know, maybe we need a refresher on. Um, And again, as with each message, it's not going to be exhaustive. We're continuing to build in our understanding of the Spirit through these messages. So I want to refresh our minds a little bit as some context as we begin to dive deeper. A.W. Tozer said, I do not want the world to define God for me. I do not even want religion to define God for me. I want the Holy Spirit to reveal God to me through the exceedingly great and precious promises he has given me. You know, you look at this quote. Within this quote, you can pick out some things that were very important to his understanding. You know, he would go to the word to understand the precious promises of God. And then he would allow the Holy Spirit to reveal the understanding to him. Rather than a religion, rather than what the world wants to say in terms of God. Understanding that it is the Holy Spirit who guides in all areas of truth. You know, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we have to ask that question of ourselves. Who is he? If you were to be asked that question by somebody in your workplace, by somebody in your family, how do you articulate that? And I know you might be worried after being challenged with testimonies a few weeks ago, but be at ease. I'm not going to challenge you in this way. But are you able to give a defense biblically of who the Holy Spirit is? The Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity. Now, the Trinity in and of itself is a concept that is difficult to understand. Uh, It is something that was developed in the 300s to confront confusion, to confront different heresies that were popping up in the early church. The Trinity, I believe, is something that was understood by the early apostles. They understood it, um, but as the church continued to grow, it became more difficult to understand. So in the 300s, they began to articulate what this means. And it was difficult to understand the Trinity and the Godhead because there is one God. You know, Christianity and the Jewish faith are both monotheistic. They believe in one deity, one God. With Christians, uh, they believe in one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't necessarily jive too well with those in the Jewish faith on account of math, on account of what one God truly means. So we have those differences. In the Bible, there are plenty of verses in the Old Testament and the New Testament that defend the Trinity. We can see it all the way from the first chapter of the Bible in Genesis where God says, let us make man in our image in verse 27. We think of the different members of the Trinity. We think of Jesus. There's different places in the Bible where he is referred to as God. I think of John chapter 20, verse 28, when Thomas sees Jesus after he is resurrected and he announces, my Lord and my God. I think of Hebrews 1, verse 9, where it says of Jesus, therefore my God, your God, has anointed you. 
And that's a callback to Psalm, I think, 51. But we can see how Jesus is being called God in the Bible. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, is a little bit more difficult to see that type of language being used in the Scripture. Many times I think that people have a wrong view of the Holy Spirit, and there's ranges of beliefs and different thoughts that belittle him in many ways. I think as believers, we can kind of treat the Holy Spirit as that weird stepchild that doesn't really fit in. He's kind of an afterthought compared to what the Father and what Jesus does. And we minimize his activities. He's seen as wild or uncontrollable so many times with the gifts. So he gets ignored or he puts, gets put on a shelf. Maybe tapped into a little bit here and there. Again, seen as a power, seen as an entity, but not really a person. You know, but when you try to, to find the Holy Spirit as God in the Bible, it's a little bit deeper in the language. It's a little bit more difficult. I mean, in John 14, you have him proceeding from the Father and Son kind of sending from the Father and Son, so that could also maybe be attributed to something like an angel. It's not necessarily the strongest verse. I, I personally like to go to Acts 5 with the altercation with Ananias. This is what Peter says in this altercation. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself parts of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So within that passage, we can see this connection of lying to the Holy Spirit being equated to lying to God. You know, when we think about who the Holy Spirit is, we need to dwell within the word. We need to be able to see a little bit deeper in this so that we can get the fuller sense of who he is. Some of this is gonna bleed over into what he does because as we define God, many times we're defining him by his attributes, by his actions. You think of how God is love. You think of how God is a redeemer based off of the different actions that we see within scripture. And you know, when I think about who he is and, and what he has done, just like with Jesus, just with like the Father, it does cross over in many areas. So when we talk about who he is, I think part of it is also relying on some good church history. How has the church defined the Holy Spirit in the past? I think of the Nicene Creed. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and Son, and with the Father and Son is worshiped and glorified. Lines within this creed calling the Holy Spirit the Lord, the giver of life. So he's equating the definition of Lord as God. The Holy Spirit is the third person in the Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal, yet distinct from the Father and the Son. He proceeds from the Father and Son, meaning he originates from God, and he continues the mission of God. Just as Jesus came to the earth to complete God's will, the Holy Spirit is doing the same thing. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God in our lives. He is a real person with will, emotions, and intellect. We mentioned last week how he can be grieved, how he can be quenched, Acts chapter 7 says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So he can also be resisted. 
in the creed, it says that he is the giver of life. I think that we can understand this a little bit better when it comes to new, the new life of a believer, when we are brought to new life as Christians. But even in creation, you go back to Genesis chapter one. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now in Hebrew, you also have to understand the term for spirit means wind. It means breath. So you have awesome connections in here when we truly like look deeper at what is going on. The breath of the almighty God, the spoken creation coming out of his mouth, breathing into existence through the spirit of God. You think about then how as he creates Adam, he breathes life into him. The giver of life. You think about how at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit onto the disciples, telling them to go and do this ministry. You think about 2 Timothy 3.16 that says all of Scripture is God-breathed. The breath of God, the Spirit of God gives us life. And then we meditate on that life in all humility. How we use that Spirit of God, that breath of God, to then breathe out curses against him. And then in a supreme act of love, through the sacrifice on the cross where Jesus gives up his breath, he gives up his spirit for our sakes. And then we have the new life that is brought by the death and resurrection of Jesus as he gives the spirit to be our helper, to regenerate us, and he is to be worshiped and glorified. Now, as I said at the beginning, there are a couple of chapters in the Gospel of John that we're gonna go through today. So if you have your Bibles, join me in John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, this is in the upper room discourse where Jesus is instructing with the disciples at the Last Supper's time frame. And he is going through these teachings, these prayers that he will have for the disciples. And, he's, and he begins this section in John 14, beginning in verse 15, talking about the Holy Spirit. Follow along with me if you have your Bibles. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he, he, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Let's just pause right there a minute and, and kind of take a breath. You know, we look at Jesus' teaching here. We see how the Spirit is identified as the Spirit of truth, understanding that he is going to be the basis of that. You know, the, the very next chapter, uh, in chapter 15, talks about abiding. So we look at verses 19 and 20. Look at verse 20 again. It says, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. You connect this to that very next chapter that talks about the vine and the branches, the importance of, as believers, being connected to the source, being connected to Christ. But as I said last week, you know, we look at how difficult these things are for the disciples to understand. They're not going to understand everything. Some of this is going to be revealed to them after the Spirit comes back. And we said last week, God is faithful. He is the one who is faithful. He is the one that we have confidence in. So we put our hope and trust in him. Um, let's continue on in 25, verse 25, or yeah, verse 25 again. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So we see this confidence growing in God because he is going to send the helper. He is going to send the spirit of truth to reveal these things to us. And then we look at Jesus' final prayer right there in terms of peace. You know, Paul, in many of his letters, as he opens, he would open grace and peace to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it was a common prayer, it was a common greeting to somebody else to, to desire the peace of God to be coming into one another's lives. And, you know, we see this joy that we have because of the peace of God, the peace of God that comes with the Spirit. And we put that up against what the world offers in terms of fear, in terms of manipulation, in terms of despair. What an awesome sigh of relief it is to have Christ, to have that presence of God, to know his peace, that true shalom of God. It is for that purpose that you should not be troubled or be afraid. This is the teaching that Jesus gives. Is that an easy teaching? If you said no, it's not an easy teaching, through my own experiences, I would tend to agree with you. But why? I mean, if this is not an easy teaching, what does that show us? When I say no, that it's not an easy teaching, usually the Spirit is convicting me of different areas that I'm living in the world rather than keeping in step with Him. Where I'm 
believing what the world will say about things and the world's ideas of peace rather than what Christ says about peace, rather than resting with God's presence. Doesn't mean that it's gonna be completely peaceful, that it's gonna be easy to go through, but you have the peace of Christ and that contentment and that joy to go through those hardships and trials. I think that we need to come to these types of points of realization and conviction in our lives where the Spirit is open to us, actively showing us these areas in our life that we don't give over to the Lord, these areas of surrender that we need to submit to, where we need to trust in Him rather than worry, rather than be afraid. It's hard to describe. But it goes back to this idea that we've been talking about, about dying daily to ourselves, where it's not about us, but it's about God, where we're submitting and surrendering ourselves to him rather than our own wills, where we're keeping in step with him and we're walking with the spirit day in and day out, understanding God's sovereign will, following his ways rather than the ways of this world. It may always be a battle for us, but with the presence of God in our life, it doesn't have to be because we can submit and we can surrender that over if we're trusting in the person of the Spirit. So when we think about who he is, what does he do? Again, it seems like a, a vague general question and there's a, too much that we can cover in one message. Today I wanna speak about just a couple of the, the bigger ones that are found in John uh, 16, so you can turn over there. And some of the other areas that we're gonna be covering in future sermons, we're gonna hit on other things as well. But according to the Moody Institute, they say that the Holy Spirit today plays a major role in the application of salvation to the individual. It is the Spirit who brings conviction to the unbeliever and causes him to see the truth of the gospel in a clear light. Those who respond to this conviction and place their faith in Jesus Christ receive eternal life and a new nature. The Holy Spirit unites the believer with Christ and places him in the body of Christ, the church. He also, sorry, he also unites the believer with Christ in his death, enabling him to live victoriously over sin. The Holy Spirit controls a believer who yields to God and submits himself to God's word. When these conditions are met, the believer lives in the power of the Spirit and produces the fruit of the Spirit. You know, as I was reading this week, I thought that that was a pretty good summary of what the Spirit does. And I want to look at John 16 to kind of back up a little bit about what was written there. So turning to John 16, we're going to begin in the second half of verse 4. <clears throat> I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. 
concerning judgment because the rule of this world is judged. I've still many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that I will take what is mine and declare it to you. So this is one of the main texts that we go to when we look for the work of the Spirit and what he does. We can see there through the conviction. Um, he convicts the world of its sin, righteousness, and judgment. The conviction, I think, is kind of easy to see. Um, the, to convict someone is to declare someone guilty based on an offense, based on a criminal offense that that person has done. Um, and to face that conviction of the Spirit meant then means to awaken yourself to the fact that you are guilty, that you have broken the law, that you have transgressed against God. And we say that we are guilty because of that sin. But I want to break down verses 9 through 11 with you today because there's a lot that's said in here. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. This means that, you know, while we can view the Holy Spirit as kind of a defender of the believers, he seals us with our salvation, things like that, um, he's also seen like a prosecutor to the unbelievers. He calls them out before their unbelief. Failure to believe in Jesus after he has come is the greatest sin. You think of John 3, in verse 18 and verse 36, Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Then a little further down in that chapter, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You know, if the people had believed in Jesus, they would have believed what they had said, what he had said about their guilt. They would have turned to him in repentance. But now that Jesus is going to the Father, the Holy Spirit will come into people of God and they will, he will work through them to continue on the same mission that Jesus is doing, carrying on that same message to convict people of sin. Now, in spite of the unbelief in the world, the Spirit does convict individuals of their sin. He, he convicts them of their unbelief, um, tries to help people understand their sinfulness so that they would believe in Jesus. But one commentator puts it this way. He said, the, the Holy Spirit may convict them, the individual, of their individual sins, but a person can clean up his life and still go to hell. It is the sin of unbelief in Jesus that condemns people. You know, this goes back to the idea of being a good person, trying to be morally relevant in our society. Jesus has paid the price for sin, past, present, and future. Will you believe in that? Will you believe in the atoning work of Jesus? That becomes the question. When that is the question, it takes moral relativism, it takes behavior modification it takes goodness out of the equation it takes it completely off the table because it's not about your good works it's not about how good of a person you are it's only about what jesus has done the spirit convicts us of our need to have a savior 
convicts us of our guilt, of our unworthiness, that we have broken the holy law of God and that we are deserving of that punishment, which is death. In the same vein, the Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. The Spirit judges rightly between what is good and what is evil, between what is right standing before God and what is not. And here I would also point out that he would point out the lack of righteousness within the body, within the world. Just as Jesus did with his earthly ministry, Jesus would point out what people were putting their hope and their faith and their trust in. And he would say that they are doing things wrong. Jesus would warn people, those who are listening to the Sermon on the Mount, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5. Then Paul says of the Jews in Romans 10.3, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. God's righteousness is, is the righteousness of Christ, which is pursued by faith. This is explained at the end of Romans chapter 9 when he compares the Jews and the Gentiles, how the Jews try to do it by their own works, whereas the Gentiles pursued it through faith. And then this faith is continually expressed throughout the scriptures. Titus 3, verse 5, he saved us not because of works done in right, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and he convicts the world of its inadequacy that they have when it comes to true righteousness. When it's compared to Jesus. Jesus, who is the only truly righteous person. And we, we then see the validity of that because he is going to be with the Father. His Father is going to accept his righteousness. So only he alone is righteous. Thirdly, he convicts the world of judgment. Judgment that is to come to the unbelievers. This happens because the devil is condemned already. So the fact that his children then can expect the same type of judgment to come upon them. Warren Wearsby says this. He says, when a lost sinner is truly under conviction, he will see the folly and evil of unbelief. He will confess that he does not measure up to the righteousness of Christ, and he will realize that he is under condemnation because he belongs to the world and to the devil. There could be no conversion without conviction. There could be no conviction apart from the Spirit of God using the Word of God and the witness of the child of God. And within that quote, he is referencing Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You know, if we look back here in John, in chapter 16, I want to reread verses 12 through 15. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. 
He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I like this part of the passage because it shows that continuation of sanctification, that the Spirit is going to continually be working in us to reveal these things to us. As we are submitting, as we are seeking, as we are going forward, walking in the Spirit. Maybe you have to turn the page, I'm not sure, but in chapter 17, verse 16 through 19, this is within the the priestly prayer that Jesus gives for future believers. And he says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. You know, his prayer here is surrounds sanctification. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. We're going to continue talking about sanctification a bit. But we see how this is part of Jesus' prayer for us to be holy, for us to be more like him to be made into his image. And we see that the, the precursor of this is that it is wrapped and surrounded in the truth, the truth of the word. So again, I ask these questions to you. How much confidence do you have in the word of God? We say that we do, but do we know the word of God? Are we continually trying to memorize the word, putting that into our lives, putting it into our hearts? so that the Spirit can speak to us through the truth, through the Word of God. Not through me as a pastor, not through worship music, not through our favorite authors, but through the gospel message. We have to have this be a regular discipline in our lives. Being able to understand the truth, the false teachings, the understandings of what the Word says seeking, wrestling, struggling through the tough passages, seeking the Holy Spirit to give us that guidance, to reveal that truth to us. Our faith is to be grounded in that type of truth that is revealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he is the third person of the Trinity. He is the presence of God dwelling in the life of a believer, and we are called to abide in him and him in us. He is the spirit of truth and he will teach believers all things. So we should not be troubled, we should not be fearful, but rather have the peace of God ruling in our hearts. The spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And for the believer, this type of conviction can happen every day as the spirit shines the light of Christ into those dark areas in our life, asking us, Will you submit? Will you turn this over? Will you give this burden that you're carrying over to understand the forgiveness that has been won for you? We seek his righteous mercy and forgiveness. We then have confidence that the Holy Spirit will continue to sanctify us in this life, to make us holy, to make us into the image of Christ as we are walking with the Spirit, as we are keeping in step with him, carrying on the mission that Jesus has called us to do. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to dive deeper 
into knowledge of the Spirit, knowledge of who you are. Lord, I pray that we would understand the conviction that comes from the Spirit. Lord, that we would not be closed off, that we would not resist it, as many of the Israelites did and their forefathers before them. But that we would understand that the conviction of the Holy Spirit is for our good. To root out the evil, to root out the darkness that we might be harboring in our life. And instead walk peacefully in your light. Lord, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us as we spend time in your word. That your spirit would continue to help us to discern from that which is godly and that which is worldly. And that you would help us to continue to unite as a body that magnifies you, all of who you are. Not just our, our favorite parts, our parts that we just get comfortable with. Lord, help us in our times of weakness. Give us that strength to continue to walk forward in faith, to be drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.